This episode of The Sporting Spirit is brought to you by our listeners who support us on patreon.com slash the sporting spirit podcast. As we're an independent podcast without any major sponsors, we are reliant on any help that you are capable of giving. Whether it's by just contributing five euros a month or even if it's by sharing the link of this podcast to colleagues, friends or family. As always, peace and love. And a very warm welcome back to this week's episode of The Sporting Spirit. I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome back my regular co-host, Carl, all the way from Sweden. Carl, how's it going, man? Oh, thank you for having me back. It feels great to be here again. It uh, was a little bit weird to listen to the last episode without hearing my own voice. Uh, but I have to say that Song did a tremendous job of jumping in in such a short notice to help you out. Uh, I know he was a little bit nervous beforehand, but I don't think he, he I don't think he has anything to be ashamed of. So great job, Song. That's it. Yeah, he was just a little bit love, nervous. He was he was wetting himself, to be honest with you, Carl. Um, he was shaking before the oh, interview yeah. with uh, Mel. But um, no, no, I think he did a, a an outstanding job, and there's been re- a really there's been really positive responses only from from yeah. our listeners about the episode, and I'm I'm absolutely glad that we had him on. And hopefully he comes back on. He's quite a shy character. Uh, I've known him quite a while now. He's a man of few words, but he's a, he's a man of, um, of great wisdom. So we hope to have him back on the show. He will, he's ready, if you say so. Without but I think also most listeners will realize also this season will be a little bit different because of my work schedule. I will not be able to attend every interview out there. I will try to be participating in every intro and outro and as many interviews as I can. But... Yeah, so that's my situation at least. But I know your situation, John, has changed a little bit since we talked uh, last time. Yeah, that's it, man. I've I've moved back to uh, to Malaysia, and I'm in. I'm currently detained in the land of the Hornbills, um, in Kuching, Sarawak, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in quarantine now. Um, I've got how many more days? I've got six more days to go. I've been in here for yeah about a week already, so can't wait to get out. But I've got to say, so far I've, I've been. I've been treated good, man. Um, I can't say I'm enjoying it, but put it this way: this 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 space I've got here is a bit like a recording studio. So at least this at least the acoustics of this episode will be decent. Yeah, that's all we can ask for, you know. That's it. Um, and yeah, sort of moving on to the gist of this week's episode. Um, as we always do, we want to cover some of the biggest stories that have come out this week in the world of sport and politics. And I think Carl has got. Talking about big, a, re- a hugely significant one for us this week. Yeah, so the topic of today I want to discuss is like this, uh, the, the partnership between like athletes and uh, the Chinese uh, phone company Huawei. And now when uh, athletes have come out and ended their partnership with Huawei, and I think the biggest star that have done this is Antoine Griezmann, mm. uh, the French football player, plays for FC Barcelona, plays, yeah. for, plays for the French national team. He's uh, the World Cup winner, etc. As so yeah, but maybe John, you can just give a little bit of background on what the controversy is. Yeah, I'll give you a quick summary. So just to talk about the main actors here, which are um, the 11 million Uyghurs, uh, um, a mostly Muslim, Turkic-speaking ethnic minority group um, who live in, in the northwestern region of, of Xinjiang, which is a province in northwest China. Um, and since 
2014, there have been revelations of the Chinese government imprisoning more than a million of these ethnic minorities and have subjected rather these detained Uyghur people to intense surveillance, um, religious restrictions, as well, as well as alleged forced sterilizations. So these are all significant human rights abuses that yeah. we're talking about. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, this, this issue has been widely covered, widely reported. You can find more information or all, all your regular news channels on this. But I think Carl's going to talk about how this links into sport. Yeah. Also, like how it's linked into Huawei as well, because Huawei have developed this facial recognition technology in general. Yeah. And now it's this technology has been used to uh, like persecute uh, the Uyghur people. Uh, it's almost like an Uyghur alert just to control them and see exactly that's where the they term. are in those yeah. societies. That's, that's the term that the popular press is carrying, right? The Uyghur alert. So they've got this facial recognition software that's used to, tr- to track. Um, we don't know whether it was made to track Uyghurs in particular, but we know that it was it was made and it's been yeah. used to yeah. basically recognize Uyghurs. So that's what we can say. And maybe just to give you a, a bit, bit of quick information about Huawei, because um, I'm sure all of you have heard of it. It's one of the, unless you've been, I guess, um, under a rock for the last couple of years. Huawei is the second largest manufacturer of smartphones in the world, ab- above Apple even, and, and just behind Samsung. So they are a huge multinational company. Yeah, and how this linked to sport is because there are a lot of athletes out there that have signed uh, endorsement deals and yeah. partnership deals yeah. with Hawaii. As we said, Antoine Griezmann is like one of the global ambassadors and there's other athletes out there. And now when the public got knowledge of this uh, uh, instance with Hawaii and their technology, there's been a lot of pushback towards these athletes to end these deals because they are... Uh, almost a face for the company and almost le- legitimizes the company. So there's been a lot of public pushback. Anton Griezmann listened to it, maybe unwillingly or willingly he did it, but he ended the partnership, or at least he want to have a meeting with them to see exactly how they work. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's, it's a significant development because uh, I just want to quickly maybe touch on the point that Carl made about um, some of the ambassadors of Huawei. Antoine Griezmann is, I think, not even the most significant or not even the biggest star um, in, in the Huawei so-called family of ambassadors because Lionel Messi recently signed a contract with them a couple of months ago. Robert Lewandowski, now the FIFA World Player of the Year, signed a contract with them only, I think, a month or two ago. Um, James Rodriguez, captain of, of Colombia, a huge global superstar as well, recently signed a contract with them. So, so we're talking about quite a few of the leading footballers in the world. And who have signed on to them. So I think it's, it's significant what Griezmann does because it's, it's interesting now to see how Huawei respond to it and how all the other footballers respond to it. Whether or not it will be kind of like a, a domino effect where they all end up severing their ties. But let me put it this way. It's not, it was not an easy thing for, for Griezmann to do. He could have easily just kept quiet you know, and, and sat on his fat paycheck. So, so big ups to, 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 yeah, to the man himself, to, to Griezmann, because what he's done yeah. Um, yeah, has shed light on the issue. Not that it's, it's been undercover. It's been widely reported in the press anyway, but I think this adds the sporting linkage to it. Yeah, yeah I think also like on a broader picture as well, it asks the question of, okay, which companies should athletes have partnership with deals with? And what kind of responsibility does athletes have of looking into which companies they are representing? Uh, do, and also where do you draw the line for this for example uh, with other companies like Amazon and, and their issues with the labor right violations mm. uh, deal with them 
I know yeah. Roger Federer has been criticized of his deal with the Credit Suisse, which is a fi- financial investment uh, company in Switzerland that has a lot of big loans in fossil fuel companies that is not good for the environment. Absolutely. No, I think, and, and yeah, before this, even most of the companies that have used athletes for their own um, CSR purposes, for lack of a better word, have been Western companies. You said Credit Suisse, Barclays, for example, the British bank um, are the main sponsors of the Premier League. And they were the number one investors in fossil fuels in the year 2019-2020. So again, this is not a Chinese issue by any means. This is an issue that is, that is widespread in sport. But this particular issue to Huawei and Griezmann um, is a significant one because of the scale of the alleged human rights abuses. And I say alleged, but there's been mounting evidence in the, in, in the last couple of years. So, you know, we keep yeah. our tabs, tabs on that. Yeah. Exactly. And it shows that an athlete, even if they like it or not, they can't get away from the fact that they are, have such big power on the market and they are such a great, such a big symbol and they will influence other people's perceptions and other people's actions towards a company. And that's they, the companies know this, know, knows this as well. And that's why probably Huawei has gone out there and signed so many different athletes mm. to become more legit, legitimized in the Western world. Without, without a doubt. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, we talk about athletes being commodities in, in the globalized, you know, um, sport economy. It's interesting to see how this impacts Huawei's, you know, reputation in particularly in the West. But on the other hand, I think it's also interesting to see how it impacts Antoine Griezmann's reputation because I think he, he's quite a, a popular footballer in, in Asia and in China particularly as well, being one of the main faces of their victory um, at the World Cup a couple of years ago, you know. So I think you know, it's it's. I'm not sure whether it's been a, it's a, it's a calculated decision by by Antoine Griezmann, but it's certainly something which I feel was done out of true conviction and 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 principle. So we can only yeah. wait and see. Yeah, exactly. It, it will be interesting to see in the future as well if more athletes are getting more and more concerned with what kind of companies they're getting affiliated with. Absolutely right, and I think I don't know. I just want to say as well that this is my opinion, and um, but I just feel that since the Black Lives Matters movement, right? In in March this year, there has been more more and more athletes that have come out and been vocal in their support for social issues, whether it is to do with the environment, whether it is to do with gender rights, whether it's to do with human rights abuses. I just feel that, um, yeah, the ground is fertile now, and it's 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 in sport, particularly. I think athletes have never been more able to come out and voice their opinions on such issues and i think people might say what about what like they should stick to their jobs or whatever and what's the point of athletes coming out but the the matter of the fact is they have an appeal if you check you know some of the biggest stars in sports and their instagram profiles and what have you these people have a huge catchment of supporters right and so yeah most it's important it is hugely important exactly so yeah i will Hopefully, as you said, it's probably going in, in the right direction. But I, I think both of us can say, like, hopefully athletes get even more aware of what kind of partnership they're going into in the future. Absolutely. I mean, in the words of Childish Gambino himself, stay woke. <laughs> of course. But yeah. But now let's go on to the actual interview that we're going to have today and uh, what kind of guests that we're going to have on, John. Yeah. So moving on to our guest today and um, we're absolutely delighted to have once again a well-esteemed expert in the field and the field 
our theme today that we talk we're talking about is sport for development and it's something that's obviously very close to our interests and something which is very close to our hearts because it's an area which we've, we've studied we've immersed ourselves in over the last couple of years at the german sports university in cologne um, it's how the conception of this this podcast came up really through um, our academic interest in the field so we'll be talking to the, we'll be talking to you today about what sport for development actually means how programs have been conceived and executed which countries have been the receiving ends of these programs but more importantly the critical elements of it that maybe people have not been aware of um, because a lot of the time the kind of work that sport for development does is seen as charity work and that charity work often goes unscrutinized so without much further ado let's get to it And on our show this week is Louis Moustakas, who is a researcher at the Institute of European Sport Development and Leisure Studies at the German Sport University, where myself and Carl attend in Cologne. Um, his work focuses predominantly on the social and political aspects of sport, broader policy environment, as well as how sport can support social cohesion and development. Um, in terms of his previous professional work, he was um, formerly the project manager at street football world as well as the game service manager of the African Youth Games in Botswana. He's also a former executive director at the European Network of Sport Education. Uh, Louis, thanks for joining us on the show. Sure. Nice to be here, guys. And we like to always start off with a broad question just for the sake of sort of easing our audience into the topic because I'm not sure many people know too much about support for development. So in, in a nutshell, or as much as you can anyway, could you please explain what sport for development means, particularly in terms of it as a, as a professional field of work? Right. I mean, I think the, the best way to view sports for development or to, to understand it is the idea of intentionally using sport, physical activity, play to achieve any number of social development goals. Um, and so in terms of professional field, I think you could branch it out into two things. One is simply designing and implementing those initiatives, mm. um, which I've done in the past, or what I'm doing now, which is to research them in a more academic sense, see what's working, what's not, and provide that more academic feedback into the field. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I guess the next question would be, because I think I don't think it's really come on people's radar, particularly even in the sporting world, the, the, the field of, or the sub field of sport for development. So how new is the actual field, if you like? You know, I think that's a really interesting question because in a way, when you read the literature, it's often presented as something that's emerged in the last 20 years, mm. right? Uh, there was a lot more international recognition about it. Uh, it's been explicitly connected to the sustainable development goals. So in the sustainable development goals, they say, you know, sport can help with these kind of issues. Um, but I think in reality, it's a lot mm. older than that. When you see that in the 1970s, the German government through the GTZ, which is now the GIZ, mm. they actually had sport development programs. They sent people abroad into developing countries to train coaches and to promote grassroots sports. 
And in the US, you've always had this discourse of sports keeping kids out of trouble, right? Yeah. So I think it's become formalized in the last 20 years as a field of action and study, but this idea that sport can somehow lead to social good mm. uh, in and of itself isn't new. It's quite old and well-established. So as you say that this, this field of sport for development have like grown, it's been around for quite a while. So what makes sports like so intrinsically unique and sets them apart from like other cultural aspects such as like art and music that don't really have a field like this mm -hmm. to be used like in a widespread manner for like societal impact? Right. I think that's, that's also an interesting question. It's something I know we've talked about in class. Mm -hmm. Why don't we use other cultural elements like arts, dance, whatever it is, to also foster development? Um, and, and I think the answer rests in two things. One is that sport is simply more popular than all of those things and, and has the ability to attract more people. But I also think sport is unique in the sense that although you do need a certain amount of skill to do sport, the threshold isn't the same. Like if you two play music and you said, hey, Louie, do you want to join a band? <laughs> I would tell you that's a really crappy idea. But if you two came to me and said, hey, we're going to go play football by the university, you want to come? Well, I, I suck at football. I'll tell you the truth. But you know what? I could run around for an hour. We could all have fun and it would be fine. And that's not true for other things. And right. I think that's often true in sport. Mm. Now, of course, you can have skill gaps and some people are too good for the others and that makes it tough. But in general, it's just a lot more accessible even when you're not the most skilled person. So I think those are the two things that kind of combine to make sport a fairly attractive tool um, to attract people into these different developmental initiatives. Absolutely. And, and it's really interesting because um, it's something which I think a lot of researchers obviously talk about, the idea that um, sport is sort of a, a very relevant, a uh, potentially relevant way to engage young people culturally, physically, and, and you know, easier uh, compared to other sort of social institutions, social forms, right? Yeah. Um, but what, what are some of perhaps the, the challenges that come with this um, in terms of goal setting? Because obviously we, we talk about, we talk about um, as you said, um, going out for a kickabout, playing football. Um, how does that actually do any social good is the question. Yeah. And that, that's, that's actually the right question because mm. at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest challenges in the field is this impression that sport on its own is mm. good, which it isn't, or that even sport on its own is neutral, which it isn't. Um, so sport can be a point of attraction. It can be something that can bring people together. It can be a fun way to interact uh, socially, but we also need to divorce ourselves from the idea that on its own, that's enough. Uh, you look at, at, at sports and their histories, well, even in a socially oriented program, you're going to bring that baggage with you. I mean, if you choose to do cricket, like, I'm sorry, there's a whole colonial si system, a whole value system associated with that sport that you have to actively work against to make a program somehow developmentally oriented. And it's the same for football. It's the same for ice hockey in Canada, where I'm from. There's a whole number of conservative and uh, toxic masculinity ideals mm. associated with the sport and that make the sport on its own 
not necessarily something that's going to promote development. You need to reorient the program. You need to have the coaches on board with that. There's a whole number of things you need to do to really achieve whatever social goals you set for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, just to go off on that point as well, because I remember when I was on, on a conference in, in Canada, in Windsor, and they were talking about uh, which sports are suitable for this kind of things. And they talked about like in Canada, lacrosse, to use lacrosse for like sport for development with the Native Americans wouldn't be suitable because they had this colonial history of taking lacrosse from the Native Americans and then change it into our sport. And now trying to implement our kind of version of your sport would come with more problems than solutions. So yeah, so you have to also have like some sort of a idea of where we are at and what kind of historical perspective we have and cultural perspective as well to see which sports, is it actually suitable to have a sport for development program? Or should we go in another direction? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the follow-up question would be related to the, to some of the research done within the field as well, because um, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen this paper, Louis, by, by Ramon Spage and Ruth Jeans and um, how they talk about the idea that, or the, or the outcomes of the research, which was clear that um, it's important that the sort of, Sport for de development work needs to be grounded within the local context, as as you mentioned, um, and and take into account specific local issues. And seeing that you have worked in in several countries, with your work through street football work, um, through the Botswana um, Youth Olympic, or Youth Games um, sort of committee, um, what what does this entail in, in your experience? I I think that's that's really difficult in a mm. way because. You know, I think ideally you would have a situation where you could come there with money and someone would say, here's what we should do with it and that's what you would do, mm. right? Uh, but I think in reality, you're always negotiating a set of competing agendas that sometimes align with what's needed on the ground, but sadly often don't. Mm. Um, and I really don't have a good answer as to yeah. the best way to negotiate that. But certainly when you think about working for an NGO like Street Football World, mm. well, I mean, our funding came from, you know, multinational corporations, from governments, both the German governments, European governments, other aid organizations. And then you're supposed to translate that into a responsive, locally oriented program in a certain community, it can be very difficult. And even if you're a local program, you're going to get money maybe from the municipality, local businesses, uh, local agencies, and they're also going to have competing interests and ideas of how things should be done. And that makes it that makes it really tricky. Mm. Um, it it's kind of goes into the, a little bit next question because, like the empirical data says that most of the researchers in this field and most of the sport programs are implemented by people from the global north but most of the programs are implemented in the global South. So it kind of creates like a power balance, I would say. And what kind of problems that's like this kind of power balance create, you would say? A lot. Uh, it's a long list. I'm not sure the podcast is long enough for that. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think there's a few main things, right? One is simply that at the end of the day, someone from my background who looks like me, you know, a white, Europe, not European, North American male, 
no matter my best intentions, there are things I'll never understand about a certain context because I'm not from there. Um, and so it's not to say these people come in here with the wrong ideas or intentions, but by putting people like me at the top, there's just, you, you just can't access that. That's just not how it works. I don't have that experience of being, um, you know, a black person in Zambia or a Muslim woman in Qatar or whatever it is. And so that's the one thing. It just makes it really hard to be responsive to local needs. Um, but I think the other thing it creates is this idea in a lot of local communities that, or reinforces these ideas that white people just, they know best, we know best. Because you know, you have these programs that are led by people from the global north who look and sound a certain way. They're able to access funding because they're from the global north. So they understand what funders in the global north want to see and hear, which maybe someone from the global south doesn't because why should they? It's not their environment, it's not their government or their culture. So you're able to access money, you're able to project this air of competence or expertise and you reinforce this idea that you know expertise and knowledge and solutions come from the global north, which in turn often creates a lack of proper local role models for a lot of people because these programs don't just get funders and founders from the global north but then they'll have volunteers come in from the global north all of the higher up staff will be hired from the global north i don't want to disparage my former employer but for a place called street football world it did not look like the whole world in our office and and so that at a certain point people on the ground in these different communities especially young people get the message that people who look like them their knowledge and their experience and their perspective isn't quite as valued. Mm. And I guess keeping in line with what you just said, um, with regards to the issues of, you know, um, these NGOs within the field of sport for development who get funding from multinationals, who employ staff largely from the global, global North. If, if you had any piece of perhaps a takeaway from your experience to then perhaps lay on advice to, perspective you know people who would like to set up an ngo and do something like that in global stuff what would you say to them then um a quick win perhaps for them for their endeavor to, to actually mean more to the people on the ground and you know to somehow foster some sort of co cohesive working environment i mean i'll tell you what i told you in class yeah. this, if you're a person from the global north if you're a white guy especially but if you're a person from the global north and you're thinking of starting a program in sub-Saharan Africa, don't. That's my advice. Don't. Because there's enough of that. We don't need more. There's no proof that on a global level this stuff works. And there's plenty you can do in your local community to help either your local community or the communities in the global south. Because there are plenty of things we do in the global north, either how we organized trade and financing flows and regulations and any number of things we do that impoverish others and that affect them. And you can lobby and advocate against those things in your home country mm. without imposing some neo-colonialist top-down external program on a bunch of unsuspecting people in the global South. Sure. And almost, almost a nice link to that moving from sort of perhaps the more crit, the, the more, 
our critiques, let's say, of the sport for development world and, and linking to, into your point of, of the local and sort of perhaps, perhaps emphasizing that. Um, all three of us have lived in Germany, obviously, and some of us currently do. And, and Germany, obviously, um, have been trying to integrate, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, almost 1.3 million refugees since 2015 coming from countries, particularly from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Um, and there are quite a few sports for development um, yeah, programs and NGOs that have been set up to integrate these refugees. Um, what's your take on, on these programs? And is this, is this what you mean by kind of local endeavors that, you know, perhaps instead of looking to go to the local South, just look in, you know, you know your, back, your backyard or, you know, in the urban centers where there are programs like this and, yeah, they'd actually do a good job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, maybe to, to go back to my uh, former employer who I may or may not have disparaged previously, one of the things that I really did like is the network itself was composed of predominantly these local organizations. Mm. And, and to me, that was the positive side because you'd go on the ground with them and you'd see the local community oriented way they were working. And that to me was a lot more relevant than some of the other experiences I might've had. Mm. And, and you see that in Germany. Absolutely. Um, even just in Cologne where the sports university is located, there's any number of programs that do that. Um, of course it's tricky because it's always finding that right balance between helping people integrate into society, get used to how things are, but also you don't want to be assimilative. You don't want to just assimilation. You need to fit exactly like this. You want to somehow create an exchange and a, a mutual understanding and a mutual valuing of the cultures that are coming in, the cultures that are already there. Um, and that can be really, really a fine line to walk sometimes. Carl? Yeah, so, oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you, you go, you go. Uh, yeah, I was just wanted to like add on because you said like yeah because sport itself can't like solve the issue. It can be like one piece of the whole puzzle. And uh, and you talk about that in in your paper from I think earlier this year. Like, can sport for development programs improve educational outcomes? And what you looked at is like if sport programs actually can improve educational outcomes. And you found out that yeah, it as itself it cannot. So it can just you need other cases or other implementations to be able to get this to foster academic performance. Can you just elaborate a little bit about this, that how sport can be part of this puzzle to come to this end? So, I mean, I, I, I don't, first of all, I don't want to overstate the findings. I, yeah. My conclusion isn't that they can't do it. It's that the yeah. evidence isn't there that they do it, that they somehow help improve educational achievement. Um, and I'm talking really here about programs that are outside of the school setting. So that's yeah. my academic disclaimer, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think to me, what, what came across doing that and, and what comes across in my experience is, is often there's still this embedded assumption that just sport is good and sport will get it done. Mm. And what that kind of creates is this lack of, of sort of, so, so to say, intentionality. So you say, okay, we have educational goals. This is what we mean. This is how we'll measure them. This is how we're going to achieve them. So how that looks like achieving them in the different context is that 
you know, making sport activities that have educational components? Is it doing homework help or tutoring or any number of things? That'll depend on the community. But I think it's often just this idea that, you know, great sport will get it done. And, and that's what I think often inhibits the achievement of any of these goals. Um, I mean, going to the article you just talked about, for me, what was really interesting is you see a lot of agencies or programs, they talk about, well, you know, the literature says that sport can help with educational outcomes, except that literature that they're talking about, it's only physical education. It's only in schools. It's not some program elsewhere in the community. So they just kind of went like, ah, it works somewhere else. So it'll work for us. And there's no extra thought put into it. It's again, just this idea, eh, it'll get it done. Sports yes. enough. And it's the same with like some of these sports, it can also some way be counterproductive if it's not implemented in the right way. You can give a lot of false promises like, oh, if you enter this program, you will have these end goals. And then they don't achieve it, the ones that are in it, and they will just be, be even more discouraged by it because they it didn't live up to their own expectations. So Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I guess, yeah, based on, on what you were saying before and linking into my previous question, uh, sport for development seem, seems to, or, or seems to be regarded as sort of you know, the panacea for, for, for a wide range of social issues, right? Um, and obviously a lot of these have been debunked by, by researchers like, like yourself and others in the field. And there's, there's a lot of criticism of it, but are there specific, Oh, what are the characteristics, I guess, of, of sport for development that make it particularly effective in coping with certain social issues compared to others, if you know what I mean? And this perhaps goes to one of our earlier questions about what, what is it about sport for development that makes it, in some ways, effective? So I, I think there's a, there's a few things that maybe there's a higher body of evidence mm. To support like using sport as a tool for social development yeah one is that i mean certainly in the sports context you do have the opportunity when you have the right pedagogical approach to develop any number of, of so-called soft skills or life skills because sport itself is an environment where you're going to have a lot of communication a lot of feedback a lot of interaction and conflict management and and so to develop any number of social skills when, when the program when the coach or the teacher organizes that environment in the right way to develop that. Mm. I mean, that opportunity truly is there. I, I don't think uh, you can, you can sort of ignore that. Uh, and so that's one part where you do have an opportunity and it's still not always easy, but it's there. And the other thing is, is inherent to the fact that sport is so attractive. You do have a platform where you can potentially bring different groups together create some sort of dialogue, some sort of intercultural education. Uh, and again, you need an intentional sort of well-adapted pedagogical approach to do that, but the opportunity is there. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, it's a lot easier to convince a bunch of kids to come play football than it is to, I don't know, sing Kumbaya, right? <laughs> so it's just, it's a way to get them there. Yeah. And, and so you, we have seen around the world you know, it, it's used in European context to foster social integration. It's been used in, in conflict areas to promote sort of peace building. And there have been instances where that's certainly, that certainly worked. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like we have been a little bit 
like very critical of the field in this episode, which we need to be, but we also need to realize that it can have really good effects if it's done in the right way. And as you said as well, it's been a field that's been around for such a long time and in a structured way for 20 years. And I'm guessing it has developed to a much better place today than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, and I mean, you know, John, you were saying before that there's this perspective, sport is, is a cure-all, a panacea, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's still true in a lot of quarters, but we've also seen a lot more critical discussions about, hey, wait a second, like if we don't do this right, sport isn't curing anything, we're reproducing the social structures that are causing these issues, this top-down, you know, the mm-hmm. coach is right, and yeah. um, all these power structures that in reality we would like to somehow challenge or dismantle. And that's, that's a very positive thing. There's a lot of good thoughts about that. And, mm. and so there's improvement. I think it's also, I think we didn't really talk about the first part of your question earlier about, okay, the NGOs, but what about the researchers? And I mean, that's something we need to do better as researchers. Like we're, we're, we talk to, our, to ourselves a lot. We talk amongst each other and to ourselves and we need to find a way to engage other people in that conversation because if we just keep that information for ourselves no one's actually going to benefit how does a local program access what we're doing how do we engage with them how do we interact with them um i would say the academic community and this is certainly not only in sports for development but we do a really really bad job at that we talk using words no one understands in a way that doesn't make sense to anyone. And then we're surprised when people don't do the things we mm. say they should be doing. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And yeah, I guess sort of moving on from there to um, perhaps a question about the future of the field. Um, we've talked so much about the present and the past um, so far. How would that look like for sport for development? And, and are there any, maybe some indicators based on, you know, the successes of current programs, certain NGOs, certain program, programs um, within sport for development of, you know, a hint of, of the direction of sport for development? Um, yeah, in, in terms of, of the way it's funded, perhaps, in the way that it's structured, in terms of the longevity of it, that kind of thing. Right, I mean... I think in terms of, of where I'd like to see it go in the future, one is is exactly what we were just talking about, right? Moving a little bit away from this, you know, sport is great mentality, mm. being a bit more questioning and, and trying to understand how sport fits in to the current social, cultural context and power structures, because it does play a role in that. Um, you know, sport has often been a place where we, show power relations where we include or exclude people and so when you understand that then you can reorient your sporting offer to to challenge those things and that's a really important step to take and that's that's a big part of where i think we need to go with this Mm -hmm. um but of course it's tricky in the context of of funding and the way things are right now because at the end of the day a bunch of kids playing on a sunlit dusty pitch somewhere in the global south it makes for good pr and and you know funders have certain ideas of what you'll do and what it'll look like and that's something i would also like us to get away from and not just in sports for development but development period if you trust someone enough to give them half a million euros then you should also trust them enough that they do what they think is best with the money Mm -hmm. but right now the way funding is is it's 
restricted to a number of narrowly defined boxes and categories that force you to always pound a square peg into a round hole in terms of what the funder wants and what you actually want to do on the ground. Mm. And at the end, the people who suffer the consequences are, are the participants in the program. Absolutely. So it sounds a bit like we're talking about um, the U.S. elections instead of sport development in many ways, no? Do we have to talk about the U.S. elections? <laughs> do, do we have to? We don't have to because this episode will probably end in about a month. So people, off people's minds. So yeah. You, no you think you think Donald Trump will be all people's minds? <laughs> they will still be counting votes. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, besides, I don't know how you get that off your mind. There's not enough bourbon in the world for that. Oh, man. I remember this. Oh, man. <laughs> anyway, um, as we are slightly running out of time, um, we like to finish off with one question. Um, and... You know, you can you can expand this as much as you want because it's quite a broad one. So the yeah. question we have for you is: what's what's what has been your most memorable experience while working within sort of the F the SFD context or sport for development context abroad? What what's something which perhaps sticks in your mind the most and you, you're happy to think about? You're happy place. So yes. th- this isn't purely a sports for development example, mm. but as you mentioned at the top, I, I worked on the organizing committee for the African Youth Games, and. Um, to say that the organization leading up to that was chaotic would perhaps be an understatement. Um, I was certainly emotionally exhausted and overworked towards the end. And we had, at the end of the day, 51 countries from Africa send delegations come to Botswana for the African Youth Games. And I was running the accreditation center at the start of the games, and I was like... I was, I was a mess, guys. I was a mess. And eventually we have the opening ceremony and I walk to behind the national stadium where sort of all of the teams were setting up in their delegations uh, to march in the opening ceremony. And all of a sudden, like, I just, there's a sea of people from all of these different countries, a lot of them in sort of their traditional gear, the Malians were wearing their long white robes and the people from Lesotho had their hats and and their roads as well. And just to see all of these people, I mean, I was like, I, I almost started just bawling in tears right there. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. Like, yeah. it just seems so fictional. You, you know, you're on emails and computer mm-hmm. and you're just running around like a headless chicken. And then all of a sudden it was just, everyone was there. And it just like felt really real. Uh, we like succeeded and, yeah. and to me that's something um i always hold a very fond memory of mm. and i guess it, in, in many ways also reflects the the positive side of the sort of the work that, that you do and perhaps we are in the field that we're in and the idea that you know um it might take a lot of work and chaos but ultimately yeah, um it does serve a purpose in bringing people together no matter how cliche yeah. that sounds but uh, i mean absolutely i think about how lucky I am to have traveled as extensively as I have. And, you know, if nothing else, for a lot of these kids who are all under 18, you know, this might have been the first time they left their country. They, they, they were able to access that kind of an experience, to meet other people, to see other things. And I know how much that's formed me as an individual, how much that's made me better. And just to, to be able to see that and to, to, to do that, um, it's pretty amazing, absolutely. And yeah, on that on that 
beautiful note. <laughs> Thanks very much again, Louis, for your time. And yeah, yeah thank you. all the best in your endeavors. Thank you. Thanks for having me, you two. So that was our interview with uh, Louis Mustakas uh, talking about uh, sport for development and the field of sport for development and its future and uh, some critique of the field as well. And uh, what is your takeaway from this interview, John? I just found the interview such a good summary almost of the field of sport for development, but also so fitting with, with the stuff that we've talked about before. Because of course, we've had um, people come on and talk about sport and the environment, for example, or um, sport and, and female empowerment. Um, and all, all these, in, for example, in, in the very first episode, for example, um, sport and, and racial justice, or almost social justice, right? And they all talked about the positive aspect, aspects of sport and, you know, and how sport can be leveraged for good or for doing social good. But I think Louis explained some of the weaknesses you know, and some of, the, some of the challenges to the idea that sport is, as I put it, the panacea or the cure for everything. Um, he talked about how, despite the fact that a sport, of course, has different threshold, uh, different threshold in the idea that I think his example was really good. So, you know, um, it's much easier to have a kickabout with, you know, your friends with all different levels, you know, rather than, so, for example, playing music because, you know, that in itself requires a specific skill set, right? And so that, therefore, sport is an avenue that, that is very reachable, very accessible to many. Um, on the other hand, this notion that sport on itself is good, by itself is good. And I, I refer to again one of the examples that he that he gave to do with cricket. Um, the idea that if you were to use cricket as a tool for, let's say, I don't know, um, racial justice or racial equality in any parts of in the global south, you almost ignore the history of the sport. So I think that applies to a lot of different sports. But my point is that yeah, it was a good episode and a good critique, as you mentioned, of sport as a whole but sport for development as a field yeah I, I agree with that and as both of us and we already mentioned that this is a field that we care a lot about and we are a lot interested in mm. and we think it's a good field like don't get us wrong on that like we think it has a lot of positives in it but we also need to be critical of it and there need to be improvement uh, for example as you said like we might need to focus more on our own local community. And then instead of having like an NGO in Germany, in Sweden, and then, oh, we're going to set up uh, football programs in, uh, in Africa or in mm. Southeast Asia or in Latin America. Uh, because we don't really have that. We're almost like an outsider coming in and we come and we have this knowledge of, or this thought of being this almost like white savior. We're going to absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, Because there are issues in our own local community that we can help with. And we have a lot better understanding of those issues. Absolutely right. Yeah, reach better results with it. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, these these were and and for myself and Carla, it was no, I think the comments and and some of the things that you know Louis Mustak has talked about, and we were really used to because we we took one of his classes while at the German Sports University. So he has got some really interesting, um, really relevant um, critiques on sport for development. And one of them was what Carl just mentioned that the whole idea of white saviorism, right? And the sort of a sort of a, a return to kind of the idea of the white man's burden. Um, we talk about this a lot in class, and it's something which I think cannot be stated enough. Because, as he mentioned, when you look at the people who go to places like Sub-Saharan Africa, to parts of Latin America, to parts of Southeast Asia to work and do development work, of course, intrinsically they have the best. Most of them, anyway, 
I've got yeah. very, very noble, good intentions. Yeah. Um, and that's not something which you're going to knock them for. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the point is that just the fact that um, there is this historic link, you know, to the white person, the European person, the North American person coming from a position of power and telling people on the ground what to do is problematic and brings with it a lot of um, complex caveats. And that's something which I think we have to sort of yeah. bear in mind. Yeah. And if you, for any reasons, still want to do programs in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, you need to give the power to their local community and then maybe become maybe an enabler with just, okay, we'll fund you with money, but you can do what you do because you understand your community in a much better way. Absolutely. I think that that's the takeaway to engage with um, the local community. And that, that sounds so obvious, right? On the outset, you know, of course, whenever you go and do, you know, if, you, if you're going to work in a specific community, the first thing you got to do is engage with them. But that often um, gets overlooked because yeah. I don't know, for one reason or another, or for, as, um, as Louis put it, you know, um, competing agendas, you know, for funding reasons, you know, your specific targets that you set even before you've been to the place and assessed the actual circumstance and situation. So it's not as straightforward as it seems, but it's something which I think a lot of development workers, not just in sport, but outside of sport as well, in terms of the yeah, aid, have to recognize. I think, but I think another point is also that see mentioned that because both of us, like most of us, are work with sport. Like we all like sport, and we have this notion that sport is good and it's good for our society, and it can do a lot of good things. But we don't. We sometimes we seem to like overestimate what sport can actually do for our society. Mm. And as he also talks about, like for this sport for development program, sport in itself can solve issues. It's part of a, like a bigger puzzle. So sport can be one part, but you, you need to have more of a holistic part of it to be able to reach those uh, uh, end results. Absolutely. No, you're right. I think, um, again, as, um, as Louis mentioned, as Carl just mentioned, sport is such a good supplementary puzzle to this whole jigsaw, right? Um, but in order to engage policymakers, you know, and to engage um, the local community, I think sport sometimes is not the best way. And that's something which we have to be aware of. Yeah. Or at least not the only way. Like, or not, yeah, sure. Because you, you can add other, like if you want to have, let's say, you say like sport and want to do gender equality, mm. just having like a football program, both with like men and female, is not going to solve it. You might need to have more of a after school programs or in school programs mm -hmm. as well attached to it or some job job program as well attached to it. And then sport should always be just a supplement or a secondary. It shouldn't be the primary part of the program. Mm. It should just be a tool, not the end of it. Yeah, but otherwise, yeah, we hope that this episode was informative for a lot of you out there who, who didn't really have any kind of um, prior knowledge with regards to sport for development. And if you're interested, um, hit us up we've, we've, we've got more information on it after all it is our field and actually all of us working on this on this podcast um, work within the field of sport for development um, so yeah if, if you want to get involved even within the field drop us a message um, hit us up because we're more than happy to yeah share more information
I think once again, that's, uh, it's a wrap for this week on The Sporting Spirit. Um, really glad to have Carl back, of course. We look forward to having once more a wide array of episodes um, with regards to the sort of guests we're going to have on. We're going to try, try and have more people who have actually done work on the, on the, on the ground, on the field, I mean, those athletes or coaches or practitioners and maybe less academics. But in any case, we hope that you keep listening into it. Yeah. I'll show. Peace and love. Thank you.